Many of you will remember Mel Gibson's purely fictional Braveheart speech in which he reminded the terrified ragtag army that they were free men. They had a chance to fight as free men and maybe die. Or they could leave and live probably long lives as slaves. Some of you are old enough to have seen or you've re-seen on Netflix the movie Patton about General George Patton, and you've heard George C. Scott's dramatic retelling of actual General Patton speeches from World War II. The general encouraged the troops, saying, now some of you boys I know are wondering whether or not you'll chicken out under fire. It's not who you are. Don't worry about it. I can assure you that you will all do your duty. In Ronald Reagan's very real Time to Choose speech from 1964, Reagan reminded his listeners that America is freedom's last stand. We are a unique experiment where government is beholden to its people. Over and over again in many of the most dramatic speeches in history, fictional and real, the speakers remind the hearers who they are, because how we act and what we do grows out of who we believe ourselves to be. How we act and what we do grows out of who we believe ourselves to be, who we understand ourselves to be. And when we're discouraged by defeat, or when we're terrified by battle, or when we're overwhelmed by extreme conditions, or Northern Virginians, when we're overly busy and we get domesticated by the dull monotony of endless everyday events, we need to be reminded of who we are. Then we can be told what to do. Once we know who we really are, there can be a reasonable expectation that we can do what we were made to do. That's exactly what Jesus' friend Peter does in his epistle in the second chapter. First Peter chapter 2, he goes full on Braveheart. He tells us who we are, and then he tells us what we will do. So today is the last in our series of conversations about the art of neighboring. If this is your first time at Gateway, thank you so much for coming. You're coming at the end, but I think you'll get it anyway. I'm going to end today with the same story, same illustration, same spot that we actually started this whole conversation with several weeks ago. In between, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, and we're going to talk about who we are. Peter just gives us a list. We're going to dial through that list really quickly. And then he gives us a purpose statement. We'll look at that big picture purpose statement. We won't stay there for very long. Then we'll go into what God has done for us. Another short list. These lists aren't meant to be exhaustive. They're just outbursts from Peter, but they're profound and epic and informative. So we'll give that list as well. And then we're going to give the plan, which will hereafter be known as the plan. And what now? What we do next? So that's where we're headed. We'll end with a little assignment for the summer. I'm going to obnoxiously make you say it a couple of times. So let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession. He's talking to us. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, some translations translate that word strangers, 
to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul and live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. You may be seated. So who are we? Let's do what Peter does. Let's just make a list. But first, I want to give you that, you know, this passage starts off with a really big but. So let me give you what the but is there for. Let's get a running start. In the build-up to verses 9 and 10, the first of this section, we just read, Peter compares us to living stones. And when put together, we become something like a temple. And the cornerstone of that temple is Jesus. After that description, he marshals two really cool Old Testament quotes to make the important point that some people accept this cornerstone and recognize how beautiful he is, while some people reject the cornerstone. And, and for those who reject him, he becomes not a cornerstone, but, but a boulder that they stumble and fall over. But we are not like that, Peter says. In essence, we are not like those who reject them. That's what the but's for in the beginning of verse 9. No, instead of that, we are... And he lists four things. As I said, not meant to be an exhaustive description of who we are. This list is just a spontaneous poetic outburst, but it's, it's epic and it's informative. And it lays the foundation for the charge he gives us. So who are we? Number one, we are a chosen people. This means we are a selected group. God picked us. What we are doing, who we are becoming, and where we are. It's no accident. That's why we say regularly here at Gateway, we don't believe you're here by accident. We don't believe you are. Number two, we are a royal priesthood. Frankly, I'm amazed, and I think it's a little embarrassing. I would say that more forcefully, except my wife was one of the number. Many of you, I'm so shocked to know, several weeks ago, you spent almost an entire Saturday watching Harry and Meghan get married and all of the hoopla surrounding it on either side. And we are a democracy. I don't know why we're so fascinated with royalty. But guess what? We are royal. We are children of the king, and not only so, we are members of the highest religious order. A religious order, if you will, that is royal. Thirdly, we're a holy nation. This means we are unique, pure, and a set-apart culture. We are a culture. We're not a attached to the culture immediately around us. We're different. In fact, when we try to be part of the culture around us, we're acting against our own new nature, the nature that Sarah talked about up here this morning. Fourth, we're God's special possession, or as another translation says, we are a people of his own possession. The Greek word behind our word possession, New Testament was originally written in Greek. That word carries the idea of saving something for ourselves, or obtaining something for ourselves. So the idea is that, that God has expended tremendous energy obtaining us, and he is preserving and protecting us for his very own special purposes. That's who we are. We are not a random collection, and we aren't people who will chicken out and run. We are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, and then comes the purpose for all of that. He says, to declare the praises of the one who has done so much for us. The purpose of all of that is to declare the praises of the one who has done so much for us. It begs the question, what has he done? And Peter gives us a list of three things. 
He says, first of all, he's brought us from darkness to light. Obviously, this is a metaphor for God bringing us from a place of not knowing who we are or where we're at spiritually to a place where we do know. God has brought us from holding in and sometimes cowering and, and shame and guilt to a place where we're free to let go and be ourselves. We don't always do it, but we're free to. He's brought us from darkness to light, and it's not guesswork. It's obvious stuff. I had breakfast this week with someone who reminded me of how obvious this is. We were meeting at Panera, and he was talking about a friend who just moves from what seems like connection then to just utter confusion. And at one point, he, he says in some frustration, there should not be that confusion. It's obvious. He said, Pastor Ed, even though it's cloudy out here, it's clearly still day. And he was using that reference to explain how dramatic and obvious a difference Christ had made in his life and has made in mine and has made in Sarah's and has made in many of yours. The second part of God's activity is God is turning us into community. Once we were not a people. I mean, you guys were living God knows where, doing God knows what, but we weren't together. But now we are a people. In fact, we're the people of God. He's building support and commonality and vision. And as you look around this morning, we are not any longer primarily people who come from Texas. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> we are not primarily white Americans or Indian or African American or Asian or Egyptian. We are the people of God together. He's building commonality and, and vision. He's building connection. He's turning us into a thing. This is an ongoing work that he's always doing, and through it, he's building attachment and belonging and support and care and all those things that are most basic needs for us. God has brought us from darkness to light, and he's turning us into a community, and finally, he made us mercy recipients. We used to be people who thought we were in control. We thought we had to make it up. Success and failure were everything, and it all depended on us. Pretty good when we succeeded, very terrible when we failed. We thought we had to be good enough. We thought our lives hinged on our effort. Somewhat comforting when we're good enough, disheartening to the extreme when we're not. But now we've received mercy. Our life, our future comes to us as a gift. And we can breathe a sigh of relief. We are mercy recipients. That's who we are. In the broadest sense, the purpose of declaring the praise of the one who has done so much for us naturally flows out of who we are and our experience with all that God has done. Awesome! And we could spend a long time talking about that, and I had thought about it at one point that we would do that one Sunday. And I could go into the, he's made us for community because you cut our veins, and that's what we bleed here at Gateway. And I could talk about royal priesthood and give you all a hard time for watching the wedding and, uh, you know, I brag about my wife all the time. I was going to give her a hard time about coming in, and she'd you got to see this part. And she would show me about 19 parts. I ended up watching the whole thing because she kept saying, watch it. And I could explain how all of that works and more about who we are, as Jordan said. Today we're going to be talking about who we are. And as, as Christians, we got our identity in Christ. It's going to be a good message. But then I thought, what's the point? What's the plan? What do we do? Given all now, what do we do? Years ago, I was in a class 
in seminary, and we had an exercise where the purpose of the exercise was to show us how difficult it can be for different cultures interacting with one another. Some of you who come to the United States know that, and you know how arrogant and ignorant we can be, but we didn't know that was the exercise. So we go into this class, we sit down, and he explains how the day's going to work. Close your books, close your notebooks, we're going to play a game today. I don't care how fun it is, it's better than class, so yay. So he divides the class in half. It's a big lecture hall there, a few hundred of us, 300 maybe. Half the group's going to go with my TA to the next lecture hall. Half of you are going to stay here with me, explain the rules of the game, we're going to play the game. It's just too confusing if all of us are together. Oh, okay. So half of them leave, we come down front, and I don't remember exactly, but it's obviously made a dramatic impact on me because I, I do remember somewhat the contours of this game. And I'm 100, so this was a long time ago. So he gives us all little chip things. And he gives us five cards. Everybody's dealt out five cards in there. Red, yellow, green, blue, I don't remember. And the goal is to get five of a kind. When you get five of a kind, you run down front, you throw your cards down, you ring a bell, and, you know, everybody's supposed to cheer, and then you get more cards and you get more chips. And then, you know, end of the time period, we count up and see who's got the most chips. Everybody get it? I don't care how you get the five cards, trade with one another, do whatever you have to do. Go. So at first it starts off, you know, a little slow. Okay, I need a green. But, I mean, four minutes into this, we're getting into this game. I, I need a blue. Somebody, I got a blue, but I need a yellow. Done. We're trading, and then we get our five. We run down front. We throw them down, ring the bell, get more chips, get five more cards, go back, giddy up. And after a while, rings the bell, game stops. Everybody who was on their way down to get more chips, all disappointed. We go back to our seats. We count our chips. There's a winner. Woohoo! Game over. It wasn't that fun, but it wasn't class, so we were pretending like we were having a blast. And then he brings the other half of the class in. Don't want to take the time to explain the game to you all, but we're just all going to play together. Here's everybody's five cards. Go! And my side of the room starts going, I need yellow! I need blue! And the other side of the room is going, what in the world are you doing? The goal of their game was to find somebody else who had the same card configuration that you did, sit down with one another, ask one another questions, and then share chips with one another. And they had no idea what we were doing. We had no idea what they were doing. And the professor allowed this to be utter chaos for about five minutes. Then had a good laugh on us. And then the profound lesson. Cultures are really different. And the way they interact with one another. So you guys, when you go out, you got to learn the culture. We are a culture, and we're not like the culture that we live in. We are different than the culture that we have our homes in and that we work in. So what do we do in our culture? How do we live in the culture that we live in? I'm going to reread verses 11 and 12, and this will be the full giddy-up. And we're going to end with verse 12 at the place we began this whole series. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. This is the first thing we do, which wage war against your soul. This is the second thing. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. If it were me, if the plan were left up to me, the plan would be shock and awe. 
If I were God, there would be a very serious pyrotechnics display at the end of which I would announce very loudly, do you get it? Everybody bow. Yeah, but that's not God's plan. It seems that God's plan has two parts. Don't miss this. And we are the centerpiece of both parts. Part one is negative in that it details what we don't do, and part two is positive. It's about what we do do. So part one, here's what we don't do. In our culture, we don't do whatever pleases us. And not just because we don't have the opportunity or the ability. Sometimes we don't do what pleases us because sometimes what pleases us is not good for us. In fact, sometimes what pleases us is very, very bad for us. And in those cases, we actually resist our desires. We abstain altogether, even when it's what we want to do. Part one of what we do, we abstain from evil desires which wage war against our soul. This is one of the reasons that the Jesus culture, our culture, is sometimes at odds with the culture we live in. The culture we live in insists that if I desire it, it must be right. It must be good for me. But God says that some desires actually wage war against me. Some of you are old enough to remember the song from 1972 by Luther Ingram. If love in you is wrong, I don't want to do right. Why are you laughing? <laughs> if loving you is wrong, I don't want to do right. That's a dangerous and arrogant way to live. And it has no part in the Jesus culture. I repeat, that has no part in our culture. We abstain from our own desires that are harmful to us, that wage war against us. But listen, in the America of 2018, I think the refrain that our culture is singing is even more arrogant and dangerous. Today, our culture is singing, loving you can't be wrong because it feels so right. <laughs> That's staking an awful lot. Just Think about it logically. That's staking an awful lot on our feelings. That's asking our feelings to be the ultimate barometer of everything. If you're anything like me, and I know you are, that's too heavy a burden for your feelings to bear. As for us, we are aliens and strangers in the culture we live in. We are ones who abstain from sinful desire, which wages war against our soul. And in the long run, this serves to strengthen and protect us. And then part two. And here's the finale. Part two of the plan. We live consistently and powerfully good lives among our unbelieving neighbors so that they will see our good deeds and ultimately glorify God with their lives and deeds as well. Finally, we come full circle. Given who we are, given all that God has done, acknowledging our purpose to declare his praise, what is God's plan? God's plan is that we would be implanted in foreign territory, that we would be parachuted behind enemy lines, and that we would tell the great news of darkness becoming light, of being included, of mercy received. And that we would live lives reflective of God's goodness to such a degree that those around us would say, I want some of that. In other words, that we would be good neighbors. That we would practice the art of neighboring. It's God's plan. And we are the centerpiece of it. I mean, really, we're it. There is no pyrotechnics display. God intends to draw the world into a loving relationship with himself, and his plan is to use us. 
We will tell Jesus a story and all that God has done for us through words and actions. We will be good neighbors, and others will choose to be mercy recipients as well because of our goodness. And listen, for those of you who love to rail against the culture we live in, we need to remember, if we do all of that, we still haven't done what Peter is asking his original audience to do because they were facing life-threatening persecution. And Peter reminds them, live such good lives that even when they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. In this business of accusing them of doing wrong, Peter wasn't telling these Christians, even though they accuse you of shoplifting, that's not part of our culture, that's not the kind of people we are. No, they were being accused of not worshiping the emperor and therefore not being good Romans. And sometimes the price of this accusation was death. So Faced with that, Peter, what's the plan? All right, here's God's plan, and it's a doozy. You are to lead really pure lives and to tell others the story of Jesus and to be incredibly good neighbors. And guess what? It worked. It started with a few handfuls of people, and within three centuries, there were millions. And you know how that happened? In the war between the Romans and the Christians, and it was a war. In the war between the Romans and the Christians, the side without the swords and lions won. Because God is good and he's powerful. And he's working in you and he's working in me and he wants to use us. We're the centerpiece. Okay. Let's wrap up. (laughs) Let's be honest. For some of us, the challenging part of God's plan... Right now is part one. For some of us, the most important thing going on for us is not figuring out our summer plans or how to navigate the next project at work or how to finish up school well. Maybe the most important thing going on in us right now for some of us is that we cannot abstain from some evil desire that is waging war against our soul. So three things really quickly. One, don't feel ashamed. It's tough. There's a reason Peter uses the language of warfare. Two, don't give up. Continue the fight. Don't surrender. You surrender, you're in confusion. You continue the fight, God will bring light. Thirdly, don't fight alone. You've got to find someone to talk to, and you've got to get people to pray for you. And there will be people over here after service who are ready to pray. Today, really do it. Don't be thinking now, someone told me, Just a couple of weeks ago, they really wanted to come one Sunday and get prayer, and I just got nervous and couldn't do it. Don't walk away. Get someone to pray for you today. Okay, for others of us, we need to pay more attention to part two of the plan. Listen to this. Maybe, maybe you moved to this area not for a job and not for a cheap house. They're not cheap anymore, but... If you've been here for 15 years, they're cheaper than they were in Fairfax County, and they were big, and you thought, yay, the suburbs. Maybe you moved here to connect with the local people and to be a good neighbor. Maybe you moved here for this. Maybe God needed someone to infiltrate your street or your school or your workplace, and he knew that you would be the exact right person. And it may be that 
We paid very little attention to this assignment. We've gotten swept up in work schedules and school schedules and sports schedules and work schedules and school schedules and sports schedules. And the only energy we had left over, we devoted to Netflix. For us, it's time to pay attention to part two of the plan. Okay, I've got an assignment. And then I'm going to end with that story I was telling you about that we started the whole series with. So here's the assignment. It's a really practical assignment. I want all of us, everyone here, if you are in the process of connecting to Gateway or if you have connected to Gateway, I want all of us this summer to take the next step with our neighbors. Again, we've talked about this before. You define your neighbors. It may be your literal neighborhood. It may be your leisure neighbors, your sports team, or it may be your work neighbors. But I want everyone in here to take the next step, and I'm going to give you a next step. I want us all this summer to have a cookout. That is the least excited that I've seen a group of people. <laughs> yes. Invite me. I probably won't come, but I like free food. If you're in a small group, invite the people in your small group. Have a cookout. Especially invite the neighbors that you don't know well. Invite other friends. Now, some of you know your neighbors really well. Have a cookout anyway and tell them what's been going on in your life. Have a cookout this summer. Let's take the next step in being good neighbors. So our assignment for all of us this summer is to have a cookout. What's our assignment? <laughs> Not bad. So during the summer, I want to hear cookout stories. I seriously do. I want to hear your stories, and we're going to have them up on stage. Here's how that conversation is going to go. Thanks for telling me that story. I'd like for you to tell that on Sunday morning. No, I don't like to do that. That's all right. I'll help you. I'll be up there with you. Just come on and do it. Okay. You'll come up, and you'll realize that you hate me once you're up here. And I'll say, so how was the cookout? And you'll say, fine. And I'll say, can you tell us more? It was good. What happened? Neighbors came over. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to hear some cookout stories. I want you to tell us that you've had a cookout, and I want to hear how it goes, because your assignment this summer is to have a <laughs> Exactly. All right, let's do the giddy-up. Let's wrap this up with where we started several weeks ago. Nineteen years ago, a developer called me up. He said, let's have lunch. I thought, awesome. He's heard how great I am. He wants to be part of our church. We go out to lunch, and it takes me 15 minutes to realize he's trying to sell me a piece of property. And I don't want the property. I don't want the property for two reasons. Number one, it is in the middle of stinking nowhere. It is on a two-lane country road that nobody lives on except people who've been there for 109 years, and some of those people go to Gateway. And it's out in the middle of no. The only thing out there is a neighborhood nobody's ever heard of, South Rot or something. And there are 400 homes there. You think there are no restaurants today. <laughs> there was nothing. Your schools weren't here. Not, your home was not built yet. No, we don't want that property. The second reason is because I did not come to Northern Virginia to build a building. I came to build a church. This is the church. I know we've got a cool building. Who cares? This is the church. When you go out to lunch with someone after church today, that's a church meeting. And I say that to this Northern Virginia developer. I give him the godly answer because I'm a godly guy. I say, Brian, his name is Brian. I say, Brian, I'm not here to build a building. I'm here to build a church. 
And he ends up giving me the more godly answer. He says, you're an idiot. We leave that, and he finds a mechanism to fund the buying of this 30-acre piece of property. So he buys 30 acres out in the middle of nowhere. It's trees. I mean, literally. There's nothing but trees. Get the picture. And he has me come to the meeting, at which point I say, sure. It doesn't cost us anything. This organization says, we're going to buy this property and hold it for you for five years. At the end of five years, if you don't want it, we're going to sell it for the market value. But if you want it, we'll sell it to you for what we bought it for. Okay. No skin off of us. Fine. So we walk away, and then over time, we begin to realize, wait, you know, it's starting to grow out there. And I wonder what they paid for that property, and, and how much can we get it for? They bought 32 acres for $600,000. I know. After he bought the property, he realized what an idiot I was and how profoundly lacking in strategy. What a poor leader I was. This wasn't about leadership. This wasn't about strategy. This was about the sovereignty of God. He realized what an idiot I was. He came out here one day to walk this property, and he said to himself, I'm going to build a mall on that property. And many of you are thinking, I'd rather have a mall. But anyway, <laughs> he said, I'm going to build a mall on that property. And he came out, walked the property, and he heard God speak to him. And God said, no, that property is mine. I'm going to raise up a church for this area and put it on that property. We are that church. And the time is now. So the assignment is to go be a neighbor. That's not that hard. Go be a neighbor. The first step that you're going to take in being a neighbor is... <laughs> That's pretty good. Father, thank you so much for calling us together for making us a people, for dragging us out of darkness into light. We are so sorry this morning for the times that we cling to darkness. I don't know why. We know it. It seems like there's pleasure there. Forgive us, Lord. Thank you for showering us with mercy and allowing us to breathe a sigh of relief. We pray that you would strengthen us and equip us, the bones, that you would strengthen our bones so that we could abstain from those desires which are waging war against our soul and that, Lord, we could live, we could speak and act such good lives and telling this good story among our unbelieving friends and neighbors that they would see your goodness and glorify you on the day you visit. That's our prayer. Fill this room with a sense of your presence and with your spirit and empower us. We're your people. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And all God's people said. Sing this bridge. I'll build my life upon your love.
Open up my eyes in wonder. Show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in love to those around me. All God's people said, did they? And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.